this week uh, has been just a kind of a difficult week. Noah has been really sick this week. Um, he's got like the, the worst thing ever, just on the, you know, mend. Uh, how it's, it's called um, hand, foot, and mouth disease. It's really, it's terrible to, to see him like <laughs> just have these like gross blisters all over. It's, it's just, it's terrible. And uh, sometimes whenever, I'm, I'm learning, you know, as a, new, as a new dad, newer dad, that whenever a, a one-year-old is sick and doesn't feel good, sometimes, like, nothing will help. Like, there's just nothing you can do because the baby just wants to cry and he's upset and he doesn't want to eat because his throat hurts and it's just not, not good. And, um, you know, like, whenever you, like, are thinking about having, having kids when you're married and everything, there's, there's all these big, like, parenting tips that people give you, and there's always this one, and I think it's, it's newer because, like, screens are so prominent now, but so many people will say, like, you know, don't fall in the temptation of, like, putting your kid before a screen, like, you know, it's so, it's not good, it's not good, like, and there's truth in that because I don't want my kid to be sitting in front of a screen, like, 24-7, but, like, sometimes the only thing that will make Noah stop is to be staring and watching some kid's show on a screen, okay? So this week, he's watched a lot of TV, a lot, a lot of stuff on TV, and we don't have cable or anything, so I'll like go on YouTube, and I'll just look, and I'll find like these kids' shows, and I'll cast it to our TV, and then immediately, the tears are gone, and he's just completely enthralled with whatever is on the TV before him, and then we get a few minutes of peace and quiet, because he's just been, he's been sick, so I guess that's bad parenting, but you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, I guess. Well, one of the things that he has started to watch that I have put on the TV for him is VeggieTales. You guys ever watch VeggieTales? You grew up watching that? Yeah. Um, you know, it's this is the show that I, I had just completely forgotten about, to be honest. Like, completely forgotten about. And it pops up on YouTube, and I'm like, oh, that's, like, I want to watch this. So this is what you're going to watch. So we put it up on the screen, and, um, of course, there's the one episode of VeggieTales that's just legendary. God is bigger than the boogeyman. You know what I'm talking about? God is bigger than the boogeyman. This is like the best VeggieTales episode ever. That's such good theology, you know? And uh, I remember just like all of a sudden just being taken back. Like I could picture the Sunday school class that I was in when I was four watching this in Sunday school, which thinking about that, like that's probably not the best use of your time in four-year-old Sunday school, but that's what they had us doing at the church, whatever church it was. And I remember thinking like, man, that song, like, the, the, it, was, it was pretty formative for me in my life. Like, God is big. God is a big God. And I remember, like, thinking as a child, God is big. And then I would think to myself, what does that mean, that God is big? And as, like, a four, five, six-year-old, what I thought was God is literally big, as in, like, he, he is his size. He's a big God. Like, he's super tall, and he's big. And, like, for some reason, for a child who would get afraid sometimes, just the thought that God is big was comforting. Even though that's not theologically what we're talking about when we say God is big. We're talking about his power. We're talking about his, his holiness and his majesty and all these things. For like a six-year-old, when you think about, oh, God is big. That means like God is bigger than the boogeyman. God is bigger than my problems. He's a big God, right? Well, Hopefully, as we get older and we grow more mature, our theology starts to get more mature. And we start to understand that, you know, God's bigness means, like I just said, his power, his, his holiness, his love. That's God is big. And, you know, if, if you've been at this church for even just a short time, you've probably heard about the, the, the distinctives that we have and, and, and the goals that we have, and one of these things is to maintain a high view of God. That is, the Christians, you need to have a high view of God. So here, this is like VeggieTales language. You need to see that God is big. Okay, you need to have a high view of him. God needs to be big to you. And if you have a high view of God, then it seems that everything else will fall into place. 
A high view of God leads to obedience. A high view of God leads to you reading the Bible the way that you should. A high view of God leads to you depending on him the way that you should. A high view of God leads to you trusting in him the way that you should. Leads to you being, not being afraid of the things that life throws at you. A high view of God leads to you having confidence in God. So while VeggieTales says God is bigger than the boogeyman, yet yeah, we're saying yet yeah, God is big. You need to have a high view of God. And having this high view of God, it brings about the lifestyle that he desires for his people to have. We're in Judges chapter 6. Go ahead and open up there to Judges chapter 6. And um, the judge that we're looking at today and, and also in the, the coming weeks is Gideon. And of course, in Judges chapter 6, it begins exactly where you would expect at this point. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, of course, the cycle continues. And they get oppressed by this land called Midian. And then we meet this guy, this, not, this guy named Gideon. And God shows up to Gideon, and God essentially just says to Gideon, Hey, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you to rescue my people, and we're going to defeat Midian. But Gideon didn't have a high view of God. He didn't understand who God was. So we're going to see that his reaction, it wasn't the best, not at first, until he actually learned who God was, and he adjusted his, his mindset, his perspective on God. That's whenever he started to step into obedience and understanding who God really is. Right, so like I said, of course, we have Midian oppressing Israel. Israel, God, he sells them into the hand of the Midianites. They overpowered Israel. So it says that Israel had to go and take shelter in the mountains, in the caves, in the sides of these mountains from the, the Midianites. The Midianites were terrible and oppressive. Every single time that Israel would plant a crop, or they would start to grow any kind of, of sustenance, Midian would come and, and completely just destroy it. No crops, no animals, no tents, nothing. They had to live and survive in caves. They would just completely lay waste to the land that Israel was living at. And so, of course, Israel cries out to God. Not repentance. They're just being oppressed. So they're crying out to God for help. And God sends a prophet first. Not a judge, but a prophet. Look with me now. Judges chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through um, 18. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land. They laid waste the land as they came in. Verse 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to God. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. They cried out, and he sends a prophet and the prophet said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in those whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's the end of the message of the prophet. Let's look at verse 11 now. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, 
which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wondrous deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So God, he sent a prophet. That's different. That's not, that's not the normal cycle that we're used to. We're used to just the judge going, but this time he sends this prophet. And this prophet, he brings this message from God, and it's, I delivered you over and over again. This is what God is saying. I delivered you over and over and over again from the hand of Egypt. I've protected you. I told you not to fear other gods, but you have not obeyed my voice. That was it. He told them exactly why they were in the situation they were in. It was because of their idolatry. And that's helpful for them, for this generation of Israelites, to understand exactly why they're being oppressed. Exactly what is happening. See, it's actually in God's grace. God's grace came and told them what the problem was and told them what they did wrong. You can see his kindness there. And and his kindness there especially comes out because typically what happens in the Old Testament when a prophet comes and says something like this is that there's a pronouncement of judgment. Far worse than what's happening at that point in time. The the prophet will come and and say, yeah, things are going to get really, really bad, even worse for you. But that's not what happens here. The judgment the pronouncement of judgment is actually left out. And the very next thing that God does is the angel of the Lord comes and approaches Gideon. You see God's grace is on display here. And you see God's grace reflected in our lives because at this point in time, what, what God should have done is judge them even more. When God should destroy us, He gives more grace. When God should have destroyed Israel, He sent a deliverer. And I just, before we even get into the first point, I I want you to see that this is how God deals with you and me. If you've read the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, you see, you see the phrase that is so wonderful to read in Scripture, the phrase, but God. But God. He's rich in mercy. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God ought to destroy you because of that. He ought to punish, but, but God sent a Savior, sent a Deliverer. We know That's Christ here in this situation. The angel of the Lord, which is Yahweh, he appears to Gideon. And he tells Gideon, hey, you are going to rescue your people. I just want you to see God's grace there. When he appears to Gideon, this is is how bad the situation is, okay? Gideon is beating out wheat in a wine press. 
A wine press is meant for wine, not wheat. So why is he doing this? He's doing this because they have to hide their food. They can't show anything or else Midian is going to come and just lay it to waste. So their situation is so bad, they're hiding in caves. They're doing whatever it takes to hide their grain, their wheat, whatever they can do because of how bad the situation is, because of how bad their oppression is. God shows up and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, when the angel of the Lord says to this man and refers to him as an O mighty man of valor, you're probably expecting this man to be courageous. You're probably expecting this guy to just rise up in the ranks and immediately go to battle and be a mighty man of valor. But what happened? He says, okay, where, where are your wonderful deeds? Why is this happening to us? How can I save Israel? How are you going to use me? And he just admits to the angel of the Lord, I'm, I'm the weakest of my dad's house. <laughs> I, I'm the, the weakest clan. I'm the weakest of the weak. I'm not a mighty man. of. How in the world is this going to happen? And God says three times, I will be with you. Here's point number one. I want you to understand how God's presence removes fear. So the point here is that the very presence of God should have been enough for Gideon. It should have been enough for him to say, okay, you're going to be with me? Let's go. No more fear. No more concern. None of this. Let's go. God says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? But look, again, we're seeing that it's not that Gideon is actually some mighty warrior savior that's going to go and save. The, the might that God is referring to is not Gideon's. It's, it's his own might. Go in this might of yours, the might, the strength that I will give you to move forward and to conquer Midian. It's, it's God's strength. His ability to be this mighty man of valor comes from the presence of God, which God has promised him multiple times. But he doesn't see it. He says, please, Lord, how can I? How can I save Israel? How can it be me? I'm weak. I'm not strong. How can I do this? And God says, I will be with you. He doesn't offer Gideon anything like this. Hey, don't worry. You're going to have a massive army. I've got a bunch of guys out back. We're going to go. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, yeah, the military intelligence I'm giving you is, is just going to, it's going to be good and it's going to conquer them. He doesn't say, don't worry, the weapons I'm giving you are far superior. He doesn't say anything like that. He, look, he, he says to Gideon, I will be with you. And it's interesting because Gideon, he did understand that what was happening was a big deal. He understood that what the angel of the Lord was saying was a big deal. And so what he was asking for here was, he was asking for a sign to be sure that it, it really was God talking to him. He said, God, is, is this really you? I need to know this is really you talking to me. That way I, I, can, I can go. That way I can actually be this mighty man and go forward. Now listen, God's presence, removing fear, is certainly not like a new concept to you. You've, if you've been in the church for even just a little bit of time, you've probably heard Christians talk or, or pray about things like, hey, like, don't be scared because God is with you. Fear not because God is with you. It's, it's all over the Bible. Fear not. God is with you. Trust God. He's always with you. He's always with you. Yes, this is true. It is true that God is always with you. But there are times where we, like Gideon, we can kind of hear that and, and think like, okay, good, but, like, but, but how, how do I know that I'm going to be okay? How, how do I know? 
It's not a lack of knowing the facts. Like, yeah, you, you know, someone has told you before, hey, God is with you. But just like a lot of other Christian cliches, unfortunately, these things can just become cliche to us. Just like other things, this can become something that you hear again and again and again, and you don't really understand how it works. You just hear this, and that you go through life with worry, with anxiety, with fear, with all of these things. And you're hearing, God is with you, and you're like, yeah, but, but how? I don't, I don't get it. How is it supposed to remove my fear? So the point is that we need to get where God's promise that he is with you gets us to the point where we're saying like, okay, I understand this, and because of his promise, I'm not going to fear anymore. I'm not going to fear anything anymore because his word says that he is with me. So that's why the point says understand how. His presence removes fear. Not just understand that it happens. I think we could go around and everyone in this room knows, basically, you understand that God's presence, his presence does remove it. We need to understand how this works. How does it work? How does God's word, how does it make a difference in our lives where we can actually say, yeah, I know that and it's working. I understand that his presence is removing fear from my life. I mean, there's several passages of Scripture that we can go to to help us understand this. But we're going to start in Psalm 23, verse 4. Very familiar passage. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? we, We know that passage. I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. God's presence should remove fear because the presence of God, it indicates his protection. You understand? That when God says, I am with you, I am with my people, that that means that he brings along his protection of his people. (laughs) Um, Have you ever walked down a dark alley alone? Anybody ever done that before? Like two people. Okay. Well, imagine yourself walking down a dark alley alone. Would you be a little bit afraid? Probably. You probably would. Um, All right. Now, I want you to imagine walking down a dark alley with Taylor Hinkleman. (laughs) Would you be less afraid? I mean, goodness, look at our leaders. Imagine if it was Taylor, Dave, and Jeremy, right? These big guys are walking behind you. Would you be afraid? Probably not. You, you, you would have no reason to be afraid, okay? Somebody pops out, you're like, guys, take, you're going to take care of me. I mean, we're good. Especially because Taylor knows jujitsu, apparently. Um, so the point is here, when you're walking through a dark alley and you, and you have big guys like this around you, their presence with you indicates your protection. You understand that? That's that's pretty simple, right? We need to start thinking of the presence of God indicating our protection. God's word says that he protects you with his rod and his staff. You know know what a shepherd does with his rod and and his staff? He protects the sheep. You've heard stories of Shepherds of, you know, even, even David, when he was a shepherd boy, defending the sheep, killing lions. The shepherd will protect the sheep. God protects his sheep. So, the truth is, you should not fear anything because you have God as your protector, your shield. Let's not oversimplify this, Okay. Because if you go and you walk down a dark alley alone in a dangerous place in L.A., right, like, you you shouldn't do that. So I'm not saying you go there and you say, God will protect me. I will be fine. Like, be wise. Okay, but we're talking about things like anxiety. We're talking about things like your future. What what are some things like that that you're afraid of? Things like that that you fear. God says, don't fear. I am with you. 
He's protecting you. And God is protecting his people from, from so many things. First of all, he's protecting his people from Satan. Right? We've got Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then we see the story of Job, for example. God, like Satan is only allowed to do to you what God allows him to do. You understand? And God is more powerful than Satan. So he's protecting you from the enemy. He's protecting you from Satan as his child. God protects you while you're being tempted. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God's protecting you from Satan, the evil one. He's providing protection for you every time you face temptation. He's provided a way out of the temptation. He's protecting you just from evil in general. Psalm 121.7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. All right, similar to what we see in the book of Job, the negative and the painful things that happen to you are only able to happen to you because God ordains it. God allowed it. So you can be confident that evil will not destroy you. Evil will not overcome you. Even if God ordains the death of one of his people, you're not being overtaken by evil. Understand? Because God is protecting you. You'll, you'll be at home with the Lord after that. Or so that's Satan, temptation, evil. And then God is protecting you from anxiety. Now, I, I know there are so many things to be anxious about, especially right now at this point in your lives. I mean, you guys are thinking about so many things. Like you're thinking about your future, money, relationships, job, school. You're thinking about so many things. And I, under, I, I know I've been there. You can lay in bed at night and you can just think, like, there are so many things that I'm concerned about, that I'm worried about, that I'm anxious about, that I am facing and I don't know what to do with it. Well, God protects you in those moments. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We should all commit those verses to memory. Because I hope that you see how wonderful those verses are. That what, what is God promising you in those verses? Do not be anxious. Look, it's not just God saying, hey, stop it. Stop it. He is saying stop it. But he's giving us all of these reasons why we shouldn't be anxious. He says, here's what you need to do when you're feeling anxious. You need to pray in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. So when you are anxious... Just pray. Just talk to God about it. God, I am anxious. There's so many things that I have to think about right now. I'm thinking about my future. I'm thinking about, is, is this the right person for me? Is this the right job for me? Do, what do I need to do? Where do I need to go? What's, just talk to him about it. And then it says, and the peace of God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard you. It will protect you. Guard your hearts and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. So pray about what you're anxious for. Pray about what you're scared of. You need to understand that it's in those moments that, that God supernaturally, like he will give you his peace. There's going to be times where you're talking to someone and, and they may know what you're going through. 
But the peace of God, because it surpasses all understanding, people may be like, how are you okay? Like You've told me everything you're dealing with. You've told me this. If I were you, I would be in the corner of the room, like curled up in a ball. And it's in those moments that all we have to say is, it's the peace of God. I don't understand it, because two weeks ago, that was me. But, but thinking and praying through God's protection over me and realizing his care and his love for me puts me in a place where I can, I can keep going. And I don't get it and, it, and it makes sense that you don't get it either because the Bible says that it surpasses understanding. But it's how God protects you. So God's presence means protection. And so whatever hardships you're experiencing, again, it is not because God's protection has failed. You cannot say, well, my life stinks, so God's protection must not be working. No, it's, it's working perfectly. And whatever God is allowing you to walk through, he's doing it for a reason. And we know that the, the number one reason is so that you can be made more like Christ. His protection is perfect. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God's presence removes fear by giving you strength. So many more verses we can go to. Isaiah 40.29, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So whenever you come to a place where you're thinking, like, I can't go forward anymore. I'm too afraid of whatever is, is facing me. I'm, I'm too anxious. I can't do it. You need to understand that God is present with you, and with his presence, he promises strength. Strength for you to keep going. He gives power to the faint. His presence removes fear by being your help, by giving you guidance. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Yes, yeah, so when you're fearful about all these decisions that you have to make, these impending decisions, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I take the wrong job? What if I go to the wrong school? What if I'm studying the wrong thing? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? God's presence removes fear by being your help. He guides you in his own wisdom to make the right decisions. So whenever you're overwhelmed by decisions to make, don't let yourself be overwhelmed. You, you have to say, okay, what does God's word say? God's word says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That's a promise. So whenever you're facing all these impending decisions and they're causing anxiety, take them before the Lord. Say, God, I'm not smart enough on my own. I'm not wise enough on my own. But I do know that your word says that your presence guides me. And you make straight my paths. And you help me make the decisions that you want me to make. So God, I'm not going to be anxious about these things. I'm going to bring them before you. I'm going to pray about it. And I'm going to trust that your word remains true. And that you're going to show me the path to take. And then I'm going to take the path. And I'm not going to be second-guessing everything. Because I'm just going to believe that your word remains true. You understand how that's so much different than walking on eggshells with decisions? Is this the right one? Is that the right one? I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make straight your paths. So look, we could go on and on all night with this. But here's my point in saying this, is God's presence does remove fear. All right, and I know that everything I just said, I know it's not a, that's not a one, you know, to fix everything, I get it. 
I know that you're going to walk away and you're going to continue to face fear and face these challenges, but you need to understand that God's presence does remove fear. And dozens of verses in the Bible explain this to us. So we need to face these fears with Scripture and say, okay, God, I'm afraid. What does your word say about this? And understand that whenever you approach fear like this, God removes it. He removes fear because he is with you. So when God told Gideon that he would be with him, God was offering the most perfect help that he could have offered him. Do you see that? Like, sure, he could have offered the weapons and the military intel. He could have offered all these things. But even those things wouldn't have been as perfect as the very presence of God. And so whenever you're looking at your situation and the things that you are afraid of, and you're saying, God, if you could just give me this, 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 and this, you're missing the whole point. You're missing that God has already given you the most perfect source of help that he could ever give you, and it is himself. His presence is with you. And his presence is all you need as you move forward and you face fear. All we really need is God's presence. And so Gideon, he wants a, a sign to be sure about this, and he, and he says, I'm going to go get a present for you. It's kind of odd. But he leaves and he says, just stay here. Just stay here while I go get this present for you. And the angel of the Lord says, okay. Let's look down at verse 19. Chapter 6, verse 19. It says, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket. And the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He is afraid here. In verse 23, the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. Verse 25, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal, that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull, and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, 
will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So Gideon, he wants this sign from God. He asks the angel of the Lord to wait And he waits and he brings this food, this meal, and and this was a large meal, considering that they were being oppressed and all of their food was being completely laid to waste by Midian. This this meal he brought, it was was large. He made the meal, he set it on the rock, he poured the broth over it, and the angel of the Lord touched the tip of the staff to the food, and then fire consumed the food, and the angel vanished. You see, and that's when Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. This was God showing him, this is me. This is really me. And it also showed that Gideon had found favor in God's sight, and Gideon responded in terror. He's so afraid. He thought he was going to die. It's similar to the Isaiah 6 scene. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. This is very similar He thinks that he's going to die because he's come face to face with the angel of the Lord. But God says, do not fear. And then he built an altar and he called it the Lord is peace. So you see, we talked about at the beginning having a a high view of God. Gideon is now moving from he didn't. He understands that this is God. He comes face to face with the angel of the Lord. And his his view of God is going to be getting higher and bigger. So it says, that night. So we know that what, what just happened, that we just read about, was immediately after this, this scene with the angel of the Lord. That night, God told Gideon to take his father's bull, to knock down the altar of Baal, to cut down the god Asherah, and to build an altar to the Lord. And then he said, take the wood from this false god, And use that wood to sacrifice the bull as a sacrifice to me. Do you think that God is trying to make a statement there? He's saying, there is no other God but me. You're going to take that idol, you're going to knock it down. You're going to chop up that false God. You're going to use that to make a sacrifice to me. So once again, I I told you this was going to happen where I'm not going to make one of our main points about idolatry. But I am pointing out to you that God hates idolatry. Every week, we're going to see this, that God hates idolatry. Faith in God is exclusive. What God communicates here to Gideon, he says, okay, you cannot have two altars. You cannot have that. It's, it's either me or it's nothing. You understand? You you have to go knock them down, take them out, because you're not going to say you're serving me while you still have an altar to Baal and this false god in your town. So God says, smash the idols. Just smash them. Take care of them. Deal with them. And it's similar to the way that Jesus talks to the rich young ruler. You know the story. He just, he just gets straight down to business. He says, okay, go sell everything that you have. Because he knew that this man's idol was money. His, his stuff, give everything away. Give it all away. Smash the idol. You, you just got to get it out of your life. God does not tolerate double-heartedness. All right, so, again, listen, if you... dealing with idolatry in any sort of way, you've got to take it seriously. You've got to understand this is a big deal. And again, I recognize that you're not bowing down before some, at least I hope you're not doing that, bowing down before some false god. That idolatry can show up in so many different ways, and we need to deal with it. 
So Gideon, he did what God commanded, and, and he did it at night, and it says that he was afraid. He was scared of what his, uh, his, his family, what his friends of the town would do. And uh, just as Gideon thought would happen, the next day, the men of the town, they saw what happened, and they decided, yeah, we're going to kill Gideon. Point number two, we need to expect the world to oppose godly behavior. Gideon rightly expected the town to be angry about the destruction of their idols. He was correct, and, and it, was, it was right, it was wise of him to, to see and to know that they were going to be mad. They were going to oppose his behavior. Godless culture will always oppose the godly. So the town, they want to kill him, so they tell his dad, bring him out. And the dad says, hey, well, let Baal contend for himself. Essentially saying, hey, if, if Baal is this mighty God, then why do, we, why do you, I need to handle this? It's proving that Baal is nothing. That, that Baal, it, it's empty. So whatever idol you're chasing after, you need to know it is empty. You're not going to find anything there because it is completely empty. So Gideon, he, he now, is, his view of God is higher, it's proper, and it pushes him now to obedience, to godly behavior. So your high view of God should lead you to godly behavior, to obedience. And, and then, when you are obeying God with your life, when you're living a lifestyle that is pleasing to God in every way, you need to expect the world to oppose you. Don't be surprised when you run into issues with the world. I mean, Jesus said it would happen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. As a Christ follower, as someone who is following after, and when I say follow, like you are really following Christ. You are desiring to live a godly life. That when you wake up in the morning, you're saying, God, I'm going to live for you today. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's all about you. That's the way that we should be living. That's the way Christians should be living. And when you are living in that way, you need to understand the world is not going to be happy with you. Godless culture is going to oppose you. Because Jesus said it would happen. So you need to decide whether or not Jesus Christ is worth suffering for. Is he worth being uncomfortable? Is he worth having people not like you? Is he worth losing your popularity, your reputation? Is he worth losing friends? Is, is he worth being opposed Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Happy are those who are persecuted. So when you face opposition because you're a Christian, it means you're doing something right. When the world is opposing you because of your faith in Jesus, it means you are doing something right. That is not, the, the, the proper response is not to say, God, why is my life so hard? Why do people not like me? Why, what's happening? The proper response is to say, yeah, your word says it, and your word says that I'm blessed, and I will have great reward in heaven for this. 
So you're doing something right when the world opposes you. When the world opposes you because of your faith in Christ. Does the world, the people in, in your life, do they know that you're a Christian? Just think about it. The majority of people that you spend time around, do they know that you're a Christian? Do they know that you would say that your allegiance belongs to Christ? They should. And then don't be surprised when they oppose you. So when you're evangelizing at Saddleback, and you get scoffed and, and made fun of, in that moment, God's word says, rejoice. Rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven. When you're confronting the sin of others, and they just slander and revile you, and say terrible things about you, rejoice. Because you're doing something right. So are you working for worldly comforts and earthly rewards, or are you working for heavenly rewards? You need to expect opposition for your faith in Christ, especially if you're living it out obediently. Let's finish reading chapter 6, starting in verse 33. It says, Now all the Midianites... And the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So we have God's Spirit clothing Gideon. Remember the promise, I will be with you. It says that His Spirit is clothing him, completely surrounding him. And the Midianites are coming. They cross the Jordan to come fight. And Gideon gathers his troops. And right when you would expect this epic battle scene, we get this thing about Gideon in a fleece. Gideon's fear kicks in. His doubts begin to arise. And he says, God, can, can you show me again that you're with me? Can you show me again that you're with me? If there's dew on the fleece, but a dry ground, then I'll know you're with me, and I'll, I'll know that we're going to win. And, and God actually met his request. gets the fleece, and he squeezes out enough water to fill a bowl. And he says, God, please don't be mad with me. Please don't be angry with me. But, but please let, let me just test one more time. This time, if the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I know that you're with me, and I know that we will win. And God met his request again. So Gideon doubted, yet God was patient. Here's point number three. Appreciate God's patience when you doubt. Appreciate 
God's patience when you doubt. Right, so Gideon's hesitant here. He's, he's filled with doubts. Gideon's human. He's human. And humans, even Christians, deal with doubt. got to see God's loving character here, his kindness and his patience. He is patient when his people doubt. He's kind when his people doubt. Maybe you would expect here, maybe this is what you would expect to happen. You would expect God to say, never mind. Never mind, Gideon. Have I not already? We've already done this, man. Did you, you remember the fire? From the rock and I like consumed the food. Do you even remember when that happened? Maybe you'd expect him to say, you know what, someone else is going to trust me better. I'm going to find someone else who's going to trust me. But that's not how God reacted, is it? That's not what he did. If, if you've read through the Psalms, then you've read about really, really dark moments that David and, and, and Asaph and Solomon faced. I mean, we've got things in Scripture like this. How long will you forget me? You understand that that's, that's a question, but there's an accusation behind that. That David's doubts were so extreme that he's saying, you have forgotten about me. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? Why do you stand far off, O Lord? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We find these things in Scripture. And God was patient. And he was kind during these intense valleys of darkness. And in Psalm chapter 73, one of Asaph's songs, it, it gives us some insight on what to do when you're doubting. God is patient with you when you doubt. But when you doubt, you've got to keep coming back to God, right? Here's what it starts off in Psalm 73. You've got Asaph, he's dealing with, he's dealing with what, what to think whenever the wicked are prospering, and he's not. He's looking at the wicked people, people who are pagans, people who are not faithful to God, and they're prospering, everything seems great for them, but here's a guy who's doing his best to be faithful to God, but life is difficult. So he's doubting. He's struggling. And he starts off and he says this, Truly God is good to Israel. I hope that when you doubt, even when God doesn't seem good in the moment, let's just call it what it is, there are times where doubt is so intense that in the moment you're thinking, God, are you really good? When those moments arise, first of all, you need to reiterate to yourself what God's word says, and God's word says that he is good. So even whenever you don't feel it, because you're not always going to feel it, whenever you're doubting, you need to say, God, I am, I am struggling, I am doubting, but you, you're good. Your word says that you're good, so I'm just going to believe that, and I'm going to repeat it back to you, and I'm going to praise you for your goodness, even though that this moment right now, it's hard for me to do that. Because I don't really feel it, but, but God, I know it's true. You're saying, God, you are good. And then it says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. They have no, no pain. They, they don't have any problems until death. And he says, the wicked are always at ease. And then he says, in vain I have kept my heart clean. And washed my hands in innocence. You see that Asaph was very honest with God. Just like we talked about earlier where you need to just cast your anxieties before God in prayer. Go to him. Tell God what's going on. God wants you to be honest with him. You see that in scripture. He's honest. He doesn't hold back the pain. He tells God the pain he's in. God, I'm in pain. He asks God the questions. There's no rebuke. You see that? There's no rebuke. 
God's patient and he's kind. He doesn't backhand him and say, you're dumb, you should just listen to what I'm saying. He doesn't do anything like that. God desires for you to talk with him, to pray to him, be honest with him. And that psalm says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. So what he's saying here is that he was thinking about these things and it seemed wearisome to think about, to ask these questions. He was tired. But then he entered the sanctuary of God. He spent time with God. He would worship God in these moments of pain, in the moments of doubt. You have to spend time with God and you've got to pray and be honest with him about these things and then enter into his presence. Spend time in his word. Spend time worshiping him. Immerse yourself in his word. And then Asaph says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. So you just need to understand and remember that in your darkest season or moment of doubt, if you have put your trust in Jesus, there's not a moment where God is not holding you leading you, guiding you, holding you in his right hand. God's patient with you. He's kind. Um, I've got a little cousin. His name is Judah. And uh, a couple years ago, he was, we were all at my uh, parents' house in, uh, in Virginia. And my brother decided to come. And uh, he brought his dog. And he has this crazy uh, English bulldog named Jax. And Judah had never seen anything like this before. Judah was like three or four. And the dog runs in, and it just knocks over everything in his path, like just a bull in a china shop. And so Judah just, like, takes off. He's so afraid of this dog. He doesn't want anything to do with this dog. And so my brother's like, hey, Judah, come here. Like, come see Jackson. He's like, I don't want, I'm like, no, no. He's telling, he starts to cry. So uh, over the, the course of that night, um, Judah would look at the dog and get a little bit closer and then he would run away again and uh, Austin he ended up picking up Judah and saying hey let's let's go to Jack's you're gonna pet you're gonna pet this dog it's gonna be fine and Austin takes him over and sits him down on the couch next to Jack's and Judah's like bear hugging Austin like I does not want to look at this dog and then Austin's like turning his face towards the dog, like he's okay, he's a kind dog, he's fine, he's not going to hurt you, like stick out your hand, Judah, stick out your hand, he's going to lick your hand, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. And for probably like 15 or 20 minutes, it, it was this scene unfolding, where Austin was just patiently dealing with the fear that Judah was having with this dog. I want you to understand that God is patient with you when you fear. How many times have you expressed fear and anxiety and worry about the same thing? If you're like me, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, God's word says do not fear. His presence is enough. We need to understand that. We need to believe it. But listen, even in the moments of doubt and fear, God is patient with you. Just like Austin was with Judah. Hey, look, it's, it's okay. I've got you. It's okay. God is patient with his people. He's patient with his people when they fear. He's patient with you when you doubt. And so much of the Old Testament it's communicating God's character, and a lot of it, I have to say this, a lot of the Old Testament is, is not showing us what we need to do. 
So this is not a prescription for what you need to do when you're afraid, okay? So you can't say, oh, well, Gideon did the thing with the fleece, so I'm going to do it. Or you can't say, oh, well, I'm afraid. I'm just going to set up a test for God. No, we don't test God like this. We don't do that. That's not what we're taking from this. We're taking God's character. We're seeing that he is patient and kind with you when you fear. He strengthens weak faith. He can handle your doubts. So look, we started talking, we started this by by talking about having a high view of God. You need to have a high view of God. You need to see that having a high view of God, understanding that you have a big God, will lead you to living your life the way God wants you to live. Where you're going to face fears and you're going to say, God, you're with me. God, you're with me. You're going to be able to move forward, live in godliness, opposing culture, and and not be afraid of how culture is going to respond. Not be afraid of what people may say or think about you. And you understand, too, that when you doubt, God is patient with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a big God. Thank you for being with us. You are with us. I pray that we would understand that that's wonderful. That we wouldn't just miss that. We wouldn't take that for granted. That we would understand that you are with us. God, help us to not fear. Help us to have a high view of you. To not fear. God, help us to follow you in obedience the way that we should. God, help us to fight back against our doubts. Help us to take them to you, God. You're patient and kind and and loving with us when we're doubting. So God, I pray that if anyone tonight is in a season of doubt, if whatever doubts we're facing, I pray that we would bring them to you and that on the other side of this could be a deeper and stronger relationship with you. So be with us now as we go to our small groups. Help us to have good and uplifting and encouraging conversation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.